Okay, good morning, everyone. You guys are having a little too much fun. This is a Lutheran church. So, welcome back to our study of Galatians. We're going to be digging into the text here in just a minute. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so just by way of bringing us back up into speed, uh, back up to speed and back into the text, uh, Galatians 1, 3, and 4. I'm going to keep bringing this up because this is a key to one of the ways that Paul is thinking and that we're not accustomed to thinking. So, in these verses, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Now, that's already a complicated thought because if we've been delivered from the present evil age, in what sense does it continue to be present? So, there is a strange way of speaking and thinking here. And what is it in specific that delivers us from the present evil age? The crucifixion of Jesus. So that's going to be very important as we move forward with Paul's theology, and particularly in the difficult section to which we arrive today, where the cross and understanding how Paul thinks of the cross is going to be of the utmost importance. Now, right off the bat, Paul has stated the problem that the Galatians have given themselves over, apparently, to a false gospel. Paul went through the churches of Galatia, establishing them in the gospel of the free forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus. No need to be circumcised in order to be saved. No need to follow the dietary laws of the Old Covenant or the calendar of the Old Covenant in order to be saved. Simply faith in Christ is enough. But behind him, hot on his heels, came some opponents. Uh, Sometimes they're called Judaizers. I don't really get hung up on whatever name we want to call them. Troublers would be a textual name. But they came in behind saying, well, Paul told you just about everything. You do, in fact, have to be circumcised. And this comes to us straight from Jerusalem. So, what does Paul do to combat this? Well, in the first place, he says, My call didn't come from Jerusalem. It's not from man nor through man, but directly by revelation through Jesus Christ. Nor was I even, was it even necessary for me to go to Jerusalem and have my message confirmed by anyone. I was, it wasn't taught to me by Peter. It wasn't confirmed by Peter. Nothing. I went there and only after three years that I go up to Jerusalem for this very brief visit. That takes us through chapter 1, then chapter 2. After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem, and he relates this experience that served as the bulk of our teaching last week. The key here is that 
I mean, look how long Paul has been preaching the gospel. And he goes up to Jerusalem again by revelation, by Christ directly telling him to. And he brings not only Barnabas, who is a Jew and circumcised, but Titus, who is a Greek and uncircumcised. Of of course, both men Christian. And the key to this event is verse 3 of chapter 2. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. Now, why does that matter to the Galatians? They weren't there, but in the body of Titus himself is proof that Jerusalem was on board with Paul's teaching. So then these Judaizers, the circumcision party who are coming in and saying, hey, faith in Christ is great, but in order to be saved, you've also got to be circumcised and live as a Jew. Paul says, no, that's not the gospel I gave to you. That's a false gospel. And that is confirmed and corroborated by those who are in Jerusalem. Not that they're an ultimate authority, but in case you wanted their imprimatur, you have it in the flesh of Titus. I have an authority even greater than their human authority, and that authority comes directly from Christ. So, a way of summarizing Paul's argument here to four. He goes on to describe um, through verse 10 this interaction he had in Jerusalem. Uh, and how his gospel was approved. In verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, Yet because of false brothers, Pseudadelphus, secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So, now outright calling those who teach the necessity of circumcision pseudo-Delphos, false brothers, and that they are, by binding the conscience, Paul doesn't use that exact language here, but by binding the conscience to the necessity of circumcision, They are enslaving the conscience. They are enslaving the Christian, tearing the Christian away from the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. If you do have a study Bible, on page 2005, that's the page just one over, you'll see legalism then and now. And obviously this is uh, written by the editors of the Lutheran Study Bible, published by Concordia Publishing House the publishing house of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I want to share just a few insights and then this table at the bottom because I think it can be helpful as a generalization. So just picking up there with that first column, it is important to understand the problem of legalism in the church then and now and to distinguish it from the gospel and Christian freedom. Outside of biblical Christianity, other religions or philosophies have one thing in common. They teach that we must somehow save ourselves. Such salvation is sometimes viewed as a future paradise. Sometimes it simply means a bettering of this present world. Either way, 
It is up to us to achieve it. In Galatians, Paul reminds us that the struggle against the way of the law is as old as Christianity itself. Now, if you use the law for salvation, then you have to do it in order to be saved. You have to do it in order to have eternal life. So that's what's meant here by the way of the law. Um, and Paul's struggle against that misunderstanding and misuse of the law. So Paul reminds us that the struggle against the way of the law is as old as Christianity itself. One commentator notes, God's grace cannot be compromised. Law and gospel cannot be mingled. We're going to see Paul in his own words flesh and in his own context flesh that principle out. Continuing, that is the situation answered by Paul in Galatians. Some sincere Jewish Christians from Judea were troubling the new churches by insisting that the Gentile members submit to circumcision and other aspects of the ceremonial law. In their view, faith in the gospel was not sufficient. That's the key. New converts also needed to observe the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Okay, now I commend the rest of this to you, of course, but I will simply fast forward, if you will, to the last paragraph of substance there, where the editors write, rather than being caught up in legalism, God wants us to hold on to the freedom he gives us. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We are free. God does not intend for us to live a life as slaves to a set of rules, as mechanical robots. Rather, our good works flow from a love of God and not from a sense of bondage or slavery. Jesus alone is the antidote to legalism. He alone offers the free, full, and saving grace of God. Okay, so that just kind of gives a contemporary take on these issues. And then down below, true Christianity versus three distortions. I found this also generally helpful to wrap your mind around the topic in a broad sense. Of course, we'll dig back into Paul in his own context and his own argument here in a minute. But if you look on the left-hand side in the grayed-out column, You have Judaized Christianity. Then below it, you have legalistic Christianity. Below that, you have lawless Christianity. And finally, true Christianity. So if we look at the next column over, it says definition of a Christian. According to Judaized Christianity, Christians are Jews who have recognized Jesus as the promised Savior. Any Gentile desiring to become a Christian must first become a Jew. And you can see overlap then with this idea in a general way with Paul's own first century context. What is the genuine concern? That's the column to the right. Having a high regard for the scriptures and God's choice of Jews as his people, they do not want to see God's commands overlooked or broken. But what is the danger? And that's the final column. Tend to add human traditions to God's law. Also tend to subtract from God's concern for all nations. 
All right, so we've hit the high point of a quote-unquote Judaized Christianity or version of that and what the ultimate danger is in this. All right, next down, on the row below, we have legalistic Christianity. What is the definition of a Christian according to legalistic Christianity? Christians are those who live by a long list of don'ts. God's favor is earned by good behavior. I think even more um, to the point would be in legalistic Christianity, um, salvation is connected with our works in one way, shape, or form. Even if that's explicitly denied, it's implicitly taught by the spirituality. So this idea of faith is not enough. All right, well, what's the genuine concern of legalistic Christianity? One column over. Faith in Christ should lead to changes in behavior. Well, that's true. That's a good and genuine concern. What's the danger? Tend to make God's love something to earn. Reduce Christianity to a set of impossible rules. And I think, I think that that last line is maybe especially a valid critique of the way Roman Catholicism has viewed the ministry of Jesus as simply a new and greater Moses and the reading of the Sermon on the Mount in this way in particular so that Moses requires that you externally not murder anyone in the obvious and crass sense. Jesus, as the greater Moses, insists that that's not enough. You must also keep from calling your brother a fool or hating him in your heart. So you can see how Jesus is the ultimate Moses. And viewed from a legalistic angle, it's like, oh, you've just got the righteousness of Moses? Try again, friend. You've got to achieve the righteousness of Christ if you want to get into heaven. Does that sound like good news to you? No, not much of a gospel. (laughs) So that's... That, of course, is the tell um, of how big of a problem this is. Jesus is doing something much different there in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so this last point in regard to legalistic Christianity, reduce Christianity to a set of impossible rules. Uh, We certainly see versions of that legalistic Christianity around. I mean, even something so simple as do your best and let God do the rest. Which can sound to our ears comforting at first. Like, okay, I'm not expected to be perfect. I've just got to do my best and then God will do the rest. Whatever I'm lacking, he'll satisfy. Uh, and so it has this sense of being comforting. But the more you think of it, the more it isn't. Because why? Do your best. What on earth is that? Have I done that? Have I done that 24-7? Will I do that? And of course, not. And so this, this turns out to be yet another kind of impossible law. Do your best and let God do the rest. It becomes an impossible law. I can't keep up my end of the bargain, so why would God keep up his? So there, this actually comes out of, believe it or not, comes out of the medieval period. Facare quad inseest. This was the gospel at the time of the early Reformation as proclaimed by the Roman Catholic Church, and it means do that which is within you. Or, as translated into contemporary American Christianity, do your best and let God do the rest. 
So this was the very thing that Luther and the Lutherans uh, were fighting against. All right, well, let's drop down to lawless Christianity. What is the definition of a Christian according to lawless Christianity? Christians live above the law. They need no guidelines. Oh, anybody ever heard that before? I've heard that. I've heard that from Lutheran mouths. I've read that from Lutheran pens. Now, maybe I should put in a air quotes there, Lutheran, but... Lawless Christianity's definition of a Christian, Christians live above the law. They need no guidelines. God's word is not as important as one's personal sense of God's guidance. Behavior does not matter. Mm. We've seen that manifested, whereas like your understanding of the gospel is revealed in how many foul words you can use and how much beer you can swill at one setting. So that's an example of lawless Christianity. All right, well, what's the genuine concern? Forgiveness from God cannot be based on living up to his perfect standards. Yeah, that's a true and genuine concern. It must be received by grace as a gift made possible by Christ's death on the cross. Great, we would agree wholeheartedly with the genuine concern. But what's the danger? And I think this is key tend to forget that Christians still have a sinful human nature and fail when trying to live only by what they quote-unquote feel God wants. Well, that's one version of lawless Christianity, forgetting that you have a sinful human nature. But then here, the final line, I think, is maybe the most accurate. Also tend to forget that God's commandments are still binding or outright deny that God's commandments are still binding. Of course, we have versions of legalistic and lawless Christianity within Lutheranism, but the important part for us to realize is that we reject both of those. We may accept the genuine concern, but we reject them on account of the dangers. And here would be as good a time as any. Uh, Luther, the great champion in the Reformation, the great champion of Lutherans, teaching that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone apart from works, that we are no longer under the curse or condemnation of the law, does what as the very first part of his small catechism that the head of the household is to teach to his family? Lays out the Ten Commandments. These are the things that God would have you do. And in case we're thinking here that Luther is pulling a fast one of God merely showing us our sin, he's given us the large catechism where you can go and read that no God does in fact desire that we live in accordance with his law. So this is foundationally Lutheran um, that God's commandments are still binding, just not as a way in which we justify ourselves before God as kind of coming full circle to justify yourself by the doing of the commandments is exactly what St. Paul is arguing against. All right, well, what then does true Christianity look like? Here's the definition of a Christian. Christians are those who believe that Jesus' death has allowed a holy God to freely give them forgiveness and eternal life. 
They have that gift through faith. By the power of God's Spirit through word and sacrament, they grow in faith and in holiness of life. That's genuine Christianity, growth in faith and in holiness of life. Thankful for what he has done in and for them. That's true Christianity. Justified, apart from works, by the power of God's Spirit working mightily in us that we would grow in faith and holiness of life. All right, what's the genuine concern for true Christianity? Christianity is both private and public. With heart, belief, and mouth confession. Having received the gift of forgiveness and eternal life, Christians are now daily empowered to live that life with His help, realizing that the goal is nothing less than eternal life with God as beings who are transformed into His likeness. And then, of course, the beauty of this is that it avoids all the aforementioned dangers. All right, so I commend that uh, little table to you. I think it's helpful. I think it's helpful in seeing that um, legalistic Christianity has its counterpart in lawless Christianity. And so often uh, we see within the Lutheran Church this read that American Christianity is legalistic. And so then we posit a theology that is just, hey, what is legalistic American Christianity doing? Let's do the opposite, which is not the truth, but just the opposite Error, and not in any sense a biblical theology, but rather a reactionary theology. So we as true Lutherans, as true Christians, want to go back to the scriptures and find our identity there. Okay, well, that was a nice little field trip. I hope you enjoyed it. Let's pause there, see if you have any reflections on it before we jump back into the bus and go back to the schoolyard of Galatians itself. Please. Uh, you said the goal of Christianity is to be transformed into Christ. So that was one of the aspects under the genuine concern of true Christianity listed here in the table. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I, I was going to ask or ask you to comment a little bit. Uh, a while back, four or five months ago, you gave a sermon, I think, uh, that we, we become gods. Yeah. And it was somewhat, uh, there was some comment on that. that sure. Right? There's no reason for us to stand away from that. This is a clear uh, goal that's biblical yeah. and uh, special situation. Uh, end of our Christian life results in. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a great point, and you've you've said it very well. That once you have an eye to this, and you look to the scriptures, you look to the church fathers you're going to see that the goal for each and every one of us is to be conformed into the image of God's Son. And that while we are sons by baptism, we just got done with Hebrews, so I'll use that. God disciplines those whom he loves, and there is no son whom he does not discipline. Well, why does a father discipline his son? You're happy that he's your son. You love him. And because you love him, you want him to be more like how he should be. Which for an earthly father is, I mean, even in the crassest existential sort of way of thinking, is more like me. More like what I think righteousness is. But from a Christian, this is even more clear that we as Christian fathers want to raise our children to be like 
as God would have them, which is as God himself is, which is as we ourselves are attempting to be. So you can think even of Jesus' words, uh, I think from this last Sunday, be merciful, he says to his disciples, as your Father in heaven is merciful. And he goes on to say that a disciple is not greater than his master, but a disciple, when he is fully trained, becomes like his master. So you've got two parallel ideas. We've got the development of the sons of God into the kind of sons that reflect God's character, especially his merciful character. Then we've got this development from disciples of the master, of Christ, who, as the training is fulfilled and finally brought to maturation, are like their master. I mean, all of this makes perfect sense. So, and the idea of um, becoming small g gods is, I, I won't try to defend that idea here, but it's a fully biblical idea. And I can run you a parallel like this. Okay, um, so what, uh, my favorite um, unbelieving pagan theologian, Stephen Colbert, has this, <laughs> has, this, has this great line because he's debating Bart Ehrman who's this uh, New Testament critical scholar who doesn't think you know, any part of the New Testament is actually part of the New Testament except what he himself declares. And he also thinks that Jesus never claimed to be divine. And so Colbert says, well, he does call himself the Son of God, right? And Ehrman says, well, yes. And Colbert asks, well, what's the son of a duck? And it's a brilliant point. Ducks beget ducks. So let's apply that logic. What's a son of God? A god. God begets gods. Now, there's a great big asterisk and caveat we need to put in there, and that is that he is the creator and we are the creatures, and that never goes away. But our oneness, our identity, our intimacy with him is such that the scriptures call us small g gods. And in fact, when we call each other like God's own child, I gladly say it, we don't have a clue what we're actually saying there. If we did, we'd probably fall down on our faces. This is why John says, almost almost in ecstasy, behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called sons of God. We think to ourselves like, well, what's the big deal? We got a little water splash on our head. We're God's children. Great. We were kind of God's children before, the same way in a skunk or an amoeba is. What, not all that much has changed. Uh, we couldn't be thinking about this less accurately. The whole point of John marveling is this, is this fact that we have been adopted by God such that we poor, miserable sinners and flesh and blood, frail human beings are going to be transformed into the image of the divine Son of God and share and partake in his life as our life. We're about to see Paul himself assert this. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That is to say, the life that is Christ and the life that is mine are indistinguishable. Whatever is distinguishable of mine has already been put to death. And it only exists as that life which is identical to Christ's life. 
So this oneness and unity, this conformity, um, is, is all part and parcel of this biblical theology that, by the way, the church fathers loved for centuries, and all the Orthodox guys who form our Trinitarian theology and our Christology are the ones teaching this stuff, so it's not the riffraff. And then this goes all the way uncontested into the Reformation, and you find the best and deepest Lutheran thinkers, including Luther and Chemnitz, doing this very theology. So, uh, no, we shouldn't shy away from this. Are there misunderstandings of this theology? Well, absolutely. The Mormons go off the rails. The Mormons go off the rails with this stuff. This idea that God the Father was once just like we are, but then he climbed up the ladder somehow and became God, and Jesus was just born a man, and he climbed up the ladder and became God, and so now we too, though we're just men, we can climb up the ladder and be gods. That's a completely uh, false and alien view and has nothing to do with what the Scriptures teach. But we can't let the lie of Satan drive us away from the truth of Scripture. What would be another version that we would balk at? Um, maybe, maybe some of the ways in which modern or contemporary Eastern Orthodoxy conceives of these things. We would be uncomfortable with that, or at bare minimum, uncomfortable and unfamiliar with the categories that they're using, and um, we, might, uh, we might recoil from some of that. We might draw out some distinctions. Particularly the case when Eastern Orthodox theologians, again, more in the last, say, 500 years than before that, conflate justification, our standing with God, with this process of becoming God's or being conformed into the image of God's Son, becoming one with Him in the fullest sense. When they conflate those two things, what happens? Justification becomes a process. We would be very critical of that. In fact, we would reject that outright. Justification is the free gift of God declared to us in Christ Jesus. It's the ground of our deification. It's not identical to our deification. So we can be very critical of these other ideas. But again, we can't just dismiss them outright. If we do, we have, we're trashing the scriptures and some of the things we actually hold most near and dear to our hearts as Lutherans. We've just forgotten how, to, how radical it is to think of being God's sons. So all that to say, I hope you remember the Colbert quote. What's the son of a duck? A duck, and if you're a son of God, if you're God's own child, you gladly say it, then ultimately you're a small g. God. The Psalms declare this, and Jesus himself declares this too, by the way, in John's Gospel. So if you're looking, if you're a proof texter, go for it. You get it right from the lips of Jesus. Yeah. Thanks for that, Barry. Did I kind of touch on it? Yeah. All right. Yeah. And th- I mean, this is, main, this is fairly mainstream Lutheranism, this idea of being conformed in the likeness of God's Son. Uh, down there at the bottom of uh, the column, Genuine Concern, True Christianity. The goal is nothing less than eternal life with God, who, of course, is eternal life. So to have eternal life is to have God. As beings who are transformed into his likeness. And again, so it just, like, there's no sense in making distinction. Christ is the likeness of God. He's the express image of the invisible God. So even if we're being conformed to the image of Christ, who is Christ the image of? God. 
So it's unavoidable. You're being conformed into the image of Christ, true. You're being conformed to the image of God, true. And you can't pit those two against each other. And that's why the note here reads that the goal is nothing less than eternal life with God as beings who are transformed into his, namely, God's likeness. To be small g gods, to be creatures that reflect the creator. By the way, you can find this in nascent form even in um, Genesis. So, uh, with Adam and Eve before the fall, where God gives them dominion, that's lordship. The Lord gives them lordship. So, the idea of a human being is a manifest physical instantiation of God. It is God's representative there. So we can even see that nationally in a text like Genesis, and then we can see how that flowers to fruition throughout the scriptures, but particularly revealed in Christ. Please, sir. Yeah, uh, going along with what you just said in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, uh, John talked, and you've said this many times, uh, John talks about the uh, Jesus as the Lord of Lord, King of Kings, and who, are, who, if not us, are the other, other yeah, lords exactly. and other kings? Exactly. We're so. small L lords. We're small K kings. We're small G gods. And it's kind of like if we, if like our, our humility recoils against that, we have to be careful lest that humility be actually pride rejecting the plain words of God because they're too great for us. Yeah. So thank you for bringing that up. That's another great point. Yeah, when we say, well, John's, we'll give it to John. Yeah, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I, but, I, but I bring that out because it's so, it's so important, and it's so important that we have the fullness of this gospel because that way we're going we're to see this life correctly. We're not languishing forever. This life is as the clay is to the potter, God is to us, and he is designing and preparing us as fit vessels for a glory which is to come that is so great that Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has any man conceived. And yet the scriptures give us glimpses. King of kings, God of gods, Lord of lords, and the revealing of the sons of glory, sons of light, these kinds of images that are given to us. And just, we shall see him, Christ, as he is, for we shall be like him. I mean, that alone is enough to just blow your mind and reform the entire perception you have of your life because this life is a tiny little moment in time in which God is shaping and forming you into the image of his eternal and everlasting son that you might also be his eternal and everlasting sons. The honor is unspeakable, the glory unimaginable. Christ is born from the dead that we might not be born any longer of flesh, but that we might likewise be those who are born from the dead. The tomb become the womb. And this idea that like, you know, who's your, this is going to be great. Like, who's your mom? Death. (laughs) I mean, in the sense that I came forth from death. That's how little death is. I, I, I love death. I'm endeared to death. Death is as nothing but a birth to me. We are those who have conquered, have overcome, again, to use the triumphal language of uh, Revelation, that the, death isn't a shame. Death is precisely the foundation of our glory. 
Sin is no longer a shame. Sin is the very thing that Christ bore for us and is his glory and is our connection to him. We are those who have conquered death, conquered sin, and done so by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of his testimony. So that's Revelation 12. Our shame is transformed into glory, and these things take on the exact opposite image and nature that they currently have for us. Anyway, fun and delightful ways to think, but they can be of the utmost practical value lest we get bogged down in this life, in this world, and we wonder why God is afflicting us so, and what's he doing, and will it last forever? And the answer is no, it won't last forever, and he's got great purposes. In fact, as the book of Concord states for us, ripping off a Pauline passage, God, before the foundation of the world, knew all of this and handpicked all of this to befall you so that he could conform you through these afflictions and crosses precisely and specifically into the image of his Son, which before the foundation of the world he had set in mind. He knows your beginning and he knows your goal and he's getting you exactly there. So hang on for the ride and entrust yourself to him and to his grace. It's beautiful, wonderful, comforting theology. All right, anything else? Are we, uh, sorry, I got, got going a little wild there. All right, you can tell I'm a bit passionate about that subject because I think it's a, it's a gospel that the Bible gives us and thus we need to hear it whether we're ready for it or not. All right, so going all the way back then, we launched off in chapter 2, verse 4 with this concept, the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. And we mapped out Judaized Christianity, legalistic Christianity, lawless Christianity, so we know the pitfalls that we're trying to avoid. Now, when God set the people of Israel free, having them cross through the Red Sea, what did he set them free from? Bondage to Pharaoh. So there's always a setting free from something. And when he set them free from it, did he then just say to them, uh, hey, just, you know, run around the wilderness and do whatever's right in your own eyes. No, in fact, they did that very thing when they made a golden calf and called it Yahweh. All right? So God sets free from Pharaoh and slavery, and he sets them free to do what they could not previously do, which is worship him. So there, in terms of freedom, there's always a being set free from something in order to do something. Never in the Bible is there this nebulous sense of like, hey, you're free, go do whatever you want. Ooh, whatever I want. Remember the Lutheran definition of sin? The incurvatus in se. Sin is precisely sin because I'm curved in on myself and constantly do whatever I want to do. So God doesn't set us free to do whatever we want to do. That's like him setting us free from sin so that we can go sin. That makes no sense. So God sets us free from sin, free from ourselves and our selfishness, that we might serve him and neighbor. So when we see that language of freedom, we always want to think he's setting us free from something to do something. We don't want to think in these nebulous terms of now I get to do whatever I want. That's precisely the biblical definition of bondage. Bondage to sin and Satan is doing whatever the fallen self wants. This, of course, is the great 
insight of Luther in bondage of the will. It's not like, oh no, Satan's got me against my will, doing all these things like a puppet master. It's precisely that he has my will so in bondage that whatever I choose to do is perfectly in keeping with his evil and satanic will. So the very thing that I want to do is the evil thing. That's the problem. And we all feel that in our flesh. It's a struggle against our flesh and a struggle against that bound will. But if we abide in Christ's word, we will know the truth and the truth will set us free, free from that bondage, free to worship God without fear, serving him and neighbor. All right, so that freedom we have in Christ, we want to make sure we get that right, that it's a freedom from Satan and sin to serve God in Christ Jesus. All right, and then what is slavery here? Believing also, like in context, verse 4, the slavery is believing that you have to work and earn your way into righteousness in God's sight, into justification, into eternal life. That's not true. Okay, how far did we get last week? Did we get through um, chapter 10, or verse 10, excuse me? Yes. Does anybody? Okay, great. So, I didn't get the time, to sp- obviously, that I wanted to spend on this phrase freedom that we have in Christ. And then, as we go along, um, everybody in Jerusalem acknowledges that Paul has received a parallel ministry to that of Peter. Peter has an apostolic ministry to the circumcised, Paul to the uncircumcised. It is Christ who gives this to them both. And then the only thing that is said here in Jerusalem is that a collection be taken for the poor. Verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. And I pointed out in your study note down below uh, the multiple references to that. The, st- the note on verse 10, remember the poor. You can see the references bracketed uh, below. Okay, so everything sounds like it's going swimmingly, but then verse 11, something bad happens. But when Cephas came, this is Peter, came to Antioch, that's Syrian Antioch. If you remember on your map on page 1886, it's off on the right-hand side. Uh, And, oh, interesting note, if you go down to the study um, note below, it says the first Gentile church was founded here with the aid of Barnabas and Paul. So we're at ground zero of the Gentile church. That's kind of a fun context, if you will. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Of course, the Roman Catholics are getting a little uncomfortable here because... The Pope doesn't look so good. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James. Now that's left ambiguous. Does James himself send them? Is James himself a Judaizer? Unlikely. Unlikely because we see James as part and parcel of the previous section agreeing with Paul. So these are men who come from James, that is, they are known to James, uh, but not likely their theology. Anyway, before these men from James came to Antioch, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, which if you're a Jew, you would never do. 
But what Peter knows is what Paul knows, that is, the ceremonial law has utterly been put away, and there is no distinction of foods. And so he's perfectly within his Christian freedom to eat with the Gentiles, and he's doing so. And then come along these guys from James, and he stops doing it. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Ooh, painful for Paul, painful for Barnabas. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step, orthopedusin, was not walking straightly or rightly with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, and not like a Jew, which is what he's been doing, how can you force, or in other words, how can you now compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul is very impassioned in this section, and you're going to see it even more next next section. And when Paul gets impassioned, his grammar falls apart, (laughs) and he starts assuming parts of the argument without outright stating them. And that's what leads to some real difficult sections to interpret. There's like three different things Paul could be meaning. They're all right. They're all fine. We just don't know exactly what he's meaning because he's so impassioned. One might even say like righteously angry that his grammar suffering. He's just hitting the point so fast and intensely that, we're, that he's not taking the time to lay out the fullness of his argument. So this passage too can strike us that way because it can strike us as a little confusing on first read. But it's clear enough. He's saying, hey, If you, who are a Jew by birth, Peter, if you've been living like Gentiles, you've been eating with them, you haven't been following any of the dietary restrictions, everything else, so you've been living like a Gentile and not like a Jew, then how, what's changed? Now that these guys come, you're separating, which is forcing or compelling the Gentiles to live like Jews. That is, if they would have fellowship with you, they must be circumcised and follow the dietary laws so they can go sit at your table on the playground. So you can see, hopefully, the hypocrisy. All right, any questions? So far, so good? Clear enough? Interestingly, interestingly, uh, that last line, um, how can you force or compel the Gentiles to you diet sane, Judaize, become Jews? even stronger language there than I think live like Jews, although maybe the live like Jews is clearer in English. Yes, sir. Uh, Just for clarification, was Peter present in Jerusalem when Paul went there? Yeah. Yeah. So this happens afterwards, so it wasn't resolved then. It continued to fester, I guess, right? Yeah, there's there's controversy about the chronology of all of this, but yes, I, it makes the most sense to assume that Paul is relating something after this event, which the Judaizers might well recount half the story. Hey, we Peter once fell that way, but then when he came to Antioch, he changed his mind, started singing a different tune, so you guys should too. And so here Paul would be like, well, let me address that and tell you the whole story. 
Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Okay, verse 15, it gets a little tricky. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. So let's pause there. We ourselves are Jews by birth. So he's talking in this kind of collective way and not Gentile sinners. That is to say, we don't live as the Gentiles live. It's almost like thought experiment territory. Okay? Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And here, by the way, is a paraphrase of Psalm 143, verse 2. So Paul is drawing on a textual uh, element here. And you can see that over in the right-hand column on your study Bible in brackets. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, now the hour here is still the Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Now this is the first ambiguity can be taken in at least a couple different ways. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a minister or servant of sin? Certainly not. All right, so what's going on here? If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are to be found sinners. That is, if you look in the immediate context, it's the Gentile sinners. So if we too are found to be living as Gentiles, then is Christ a servant of sin? No, he says. But there's another way to take that. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, that is, remember the whole opening argument of Romans. That even though you're a Jew, you're no different than a Gentile. For you who are condemned by the law, they are condemned without the law by their conscience. So there is no difference between Jew or Greek. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's the second way to take this. And it, te- it looks like it's the way that the study, no- the study Bible takes it. And I think it's probably the generally safest. Although you could interpret, it, interpret either way and still be fine. This is probably what he means. So, so if we're all sinners, then is Christ a servant of sin? Is he the one that comes and says, hey, Jews, you're sinners, Gentiles, you're sinners, get rid of the law. And to Jewish ears, you're going, wait a minute, get rid of the law, the very thing that made us not as sinful. And now you're just lumping us all in sin. Did Christ come to just increase sin and let everybody sin and sin all the more? Is that why Christ came? And Paul's saying, certainly not. Okay? So that's the rhetoric heretofore. Doss in his commentary is like just flat out Paul is leaving out parts of his argument. That's <laughs> what he says. And then verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, 
okay, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What did he tear down? This expectation that you have to live as a Jew in order to be saved. That's what's torn down. Now, if I rebuild that, then I've become a transgressor. I've become a sinner. That's what Paul's saying. This becomes clearer as Paul's argument goes on. For though, or excuse me, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. So the previous life he had is no more. He has died and died to the law. So the law killed him and his relationship to the law ended so that I might live to God. There's a new, there's a transition to a newness here. This is the first obvious parallel to chapter 1, verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Paul was delivered from the present evil age when he died to the law and thus became alive in Christ. Okay, I recognize that it's still not as clear yet as it needs to be. Verse 19, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. Now there's the key. It's becoming much clearer. Because remember back in verse 1, chapter 3, The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that's his death on the cross, to deliver us from the present evil age. And now I have been crucified with Christ. That is, as Christ has created a bifurcation between the old evil age and the new creation that in him has come, it's the crucifix that marks that. As I, St. Paul says, have been crucified with Christ Jesus, I have been transferred from the the kingdom of the law to the kingdom of Christ. I died to the law through the law so that I might live to God. The demarcation, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, if you flood Romans 6 theology in here, at what point in time would Paul specify that he was crucified with Christ? Baptism. That's what it is to be united with Christ in a death like his. So Paul is crucified with Christ when he is baptized, united with him in a death like his, buried with him, that he also might be raised with him and walk in newness of life so that I might live to God is the rhetoric here. So I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but... Christ who lives in me. And that gets to the point I was riffing on earlier about the profundity and the unspeakable nature of this, that our life is Christ's life. And other than like a distinction between creator and creature, no other distinction can be made. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, who pair on behalf of me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So now Paul is setting up 
uh, the first of many very harsh contrasts. You, if you pay attention to his rhetoric, you can see why Luther has no problem inserting the word align alone when it faith alone justifies because faith is distinguished here. It's made exclusive from works of the law. Uh, Christ's death is juxtaposed to a righteousness of the law. If righteousness is through the law, Christ died for nothing. Since Christ didn't die for nothing, then righteousness can't be through the law. You see how that works for Paul? It's like mutually exclusive. It's like binary. Okay, as we go a little further, it even gets clearer and clearer. Oh, foolish Galatians, one of my favorite biblical words, annoye toy. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched or cast an evil spell upon you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed Prographe, it's weird language. Because graphe is like writing or engraving. Publicly engraved or publicly written or publicly set before your eyes as what? Crucified. See, the linchpin of all of Paul's logic is the crucifixion. The crucifixion disproves righteousness by the law. The crucifixion brings to an end this quote-unquote present evil age. And if I've been crucified with Christ, then I no longer am under the law in any sense. I am free to live apart from the law. That is, um, there's no necessity for me to be circumcised. There's no necessity to follow the dietary laws. There's no necessity to do any of this other stuff. Thus, the Judaizers are wrong. Thus, Peter, Barnabas, and all the other Jews who fell in with them are wrong. What they're doing is, by saying you have to be justified by works, is in fact denying the crucifixion of Jesus. That's going to be his argument the whole way. You're going back into the old age that was destroyed by the crucifixion of Christ. If you do that, then there's no cross for you. Or, as he'll say later, you have fallen from grace. All right. So hopefully this is becoming more clear then, Paul's theology and what's with all of this rhetoric. And you can see he's impassioned, he's moving fast, it's hard to follow, right up until he starts with this rhetoric of the cross. And now if you backtrack, it'll all be much more clear in your mind that this is what he's doing. We're justified in Christ through his cross. We're alive with him. Thus, we are no longer under the law and never could be under the law as if it were our righteousness. All right, let me pause there and see if you have any thoughts, questions, comments. Uh, Dawson, his commentary says that this is uh, among the most challenging parts of Galatians to interpret, and I agree, it's, it is challenging. Um, at one place in time, he, at one point here in his commentary, this uh, verse 18, no, it's, wait a minute. Yeah, it's verse 18. Verse 18 could, um, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, could be understood in three different ways that all make sense and aren't refuting anything else in the scriptures. So it's a little ambiguous there. And I gave you the one that I think that, and that Doss thinks, and that I, it's just the most simple and straightforward. Yeah, please. Okay, 
And not good timing at the end here, so probably something. I'll do what I can, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, this is such a baby-level question. But when Paul is saying the law, ever uh, uppercase, but law with the small l, meaning not the Ten Commandments, mm-hmm. right? So this is something that I just I don't really understand it, through ignorance, of, I'm sure, of the Scripture. But sure. Where is the distinction made when God gave not just the Ten Commandments, but all these other laws, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Uh, Paul's going to get to that, I guess, but at uh, each time it says works of the law. So isn't following the commandments, the Ten Commandments? Yeah, can I help clarify in yeah. some regard? I'll do the best I can. Hey, we're a minute over. If you've got to go, I don't take offense. But otherwise, I'll, I'll whip out the fastest answer I can, okay? <laughs> All right, so right off the bat, when we're talking about the Old Testament law, you want to be thinking of Sinai, and you want to be thinking of not only the Ten Commandments, but you also want to be thinking of the civil laws unique to the nation-state of Israel, and you also want to think of the ceremonial laws, which, by the way, include what we would call gospel elements, because within the ceremonial laws is the instantiation of the Levitical priesthood and the sacrifices for the forgiveness or atonement of sins. All right, so complex, to say the least. All right, what's in view are, are not so much the civil laws of the nation state. Why? By and large, those have been taken over as the Romans come and, and occupy and say, no, you're going to live by Roman law. So that's not so much what's in view here, um, the civil ceremonies. You know, if your ox gores somebody else's ox, what are you going to do? Uh, that civil law. Ceremonial law is precisely what's in view because the ceremonial law includes things like circumcision. We know that's ceremonial law because you could be circumcised or uncircumcised as a Gentile and it doesn't matter, right? Nobody cares. It's just kind of ceremonial thing. Um, and then likewise the dietary laws and likewise the, uh, like the dates on the calendar in the Old Testament church year. That's the ceremonial law, Okay. On its surface level, that's all that this is about. It's about the ceremonial level of do you need to be circumcised and live as a Jew? Dietary laws, keeping away from the Gentiles. On the surface level, that's, that's really all this is about. Okay. Now, we can go a step deeper and say, well, and this is really what happens in the Reformation. Okay, is you go a step deeper and you go, well, if we're not saved by Jesus plus the ceremonial laws then why is the Pope telling us that we're saved by Jesus plus the moral law? Okay, and that's the Ten Commandments. That's the easiest way to think of what the moral law. So the Pope is saying, hey, you're saved by faith and works by doing your best and letting God do the rest. Uh, that's how you're saved. At the end of your life, your credits and your debits are tallied and you find out how long you're going to spend in purgatory based on your balance usually a negative balance, right? Okay. So the Lutherans are coming into this text and saying, well, if we're not justified by faith in Christ plus eating kosher, guess what we're not also justified by? Faith in Christ plus obedience to the Ten Commandments. So what that helps us to make a distinction in is the distinction of justification versus the distinction of sanctification, these two categories, okay? So when a Lutheran looks at the law in the context of justification, 
Um, the Ten Commandments are not binding because we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Okay? That's true for justification. How are you saved? By grace, through faith, apart from works, and this not of your own doing, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? So that's how you're justified. Ah, does that mean, therefore, that the, I have nothing more to do with the law at all? To which the Lutherans say, no, that's not correct. Now we're entering a secondary question, the question of sanctification. And here God's moral law continues forever and is the pattern to which we are being conformed as his people. This is why if you look at the New Testament, all of the Ten Commandments are repeated as uh, binding for the Christian, save one. Can you guess which one? Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Why? Because meeting on the Sabbath day proper is in fact an aspect of the ceremonial law. And we are freed from that so we can meet any time we want. The apostles start meeting on the first day of the week, which is the eighth day, which is Sunday, which is why we continue to. But what undergirds that, that we would have a day on which we hear the word of the Lord and rest in his grace, uh, that continues on. And you see that, like, do not forsake gathering together, the author of Hebrews. That's essentially the third commandment, stripped of its ceremonial aspect, right down to the moral law itself. Okay? So let me try to just do one very quick summary. What is the Christian life? Faith and works. Guess who teaches that? Lutherans, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Southern Baptists, virtually everyone other than a bunch of nuts. All right, so what is the Christian life? Faith and works. What is justification? What determines that, that, that way in which we stand before God as either justified or not justified? Faith in Christ alone. That's it. That's what a Lutheran says. Now, you get wishy-washy answers in Eastern Orthodoxy and many answers that seem to be, no, you're standing before God is faith and works. And in Rome, you have it outright that your justification, your standing before God is faith and good works. That strips you of all comfort. You can never know if you're justified. You can never know if you're saved because there's always some chance that you've messed it up and a very good chance that you've messed it up. So again, the disagreement within Christendom on this particular question isn't what the Christian life looks like. Everybody says faith in Christ and obedience to the Ten Commandments. Everybody says that's what the life looks like. But on what basis is that life lived? What connects us to God? And that's the free gift of God in Christ Jesus, by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works, just as St. Paul articulates everywhere, but particularly Romans, Galatians, chapter 2 of Ephesians, etc. Does that help clarify somewhat? All right, best I can do, and I took much longer than I thought. The Lord be with you.